Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Seven sensational additions to the Warner Archive Collection highlight this week's Warner Archive Collection podcast. It's always exciting when we have something new to blue, and we have something new to blue virtually every week. And this week is no exception, as we bring you a film that has been requested for so long because it has been out of view for a myriad of reasons that we're going to discuss. But from the famed halls of Hammer Film Productions comes When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. And this is the original international version, not the edited G-rated version that was first seen in theaters in the early 70s. And uh, this is the original film as created by the great director Val Guest and from the mind of J.G. Ballard, the writer, and starring Victoria Vetri who was at the time a very famous Playboy model. So you have dinosaurs, hammer films, and a very famous Playboy model. It makes for a (laughs) scintillating Blu-ray. We also have back in print on DVD six films that are available individually, some of which were part of different collections. But they celebrate one of the great stars of MGM and Warner Brothers because she moved from MGM to Warner Brothers. And we cover all parts of her career as we bring Joan Crawford back to DVD with Dancing Lady in which she co-stars with Clark Gable, made in 1933. Sadie McKee from 1934, a wonderful film that is responsible for the introduction of the song All I Do Is Dream of You, which is a musical interlude by Gene Raymond on a ukulele, a very memorable moment. And then we have Gable and Crawford reuniting again for the eighth and final time in uh, Frank Borzaghi's really wonderful film Strange Cargo. From 1941, another magnificent director, George Cukor, is at the helm as Crawford co-stars with Melvin Douglas in A Woman's Face from 1941. And then after Joan left Metro, after her pictures started to sink at the box office, she rose to box office fame again by coming to Warner Brothers. And Burbank was very good to Crawford and she was very good to the studio by starring in a myriad of wonderful vehicles, starting with the Oscar winner Mildred Pierce and many to follow. But the film that we're going to talk about today that's showing the Warner Archive collection is Flamingo Road from 1949 with an all-star cast, including Zachary Scott and the always wonderful Sidney Greenstreet. Last but not least, 1953's Torch Song finds Joan Crawford returning to Metro for the first time in 10 years and for the first time in a complete feature film, She's in Technicolor. And uh, there's a lot to be said about that film, and we'll be discussing it at length as we will all these films. But the most important thing is to salute what's new on Blue, and a lot of people have been waiting for it, and ye shall now receive When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. At its surface, Dan, you know, dinosaur movie. Akita. But deep down inside, it is so much more. It's probably a philosophical contemplation of what it means to to be human. Dan, would you, do you agree with that statement? Ta'amo. Uh-huh. Now, Dan is not speaking Klingon, folks, but what? there is a unique language endemic to when dinosaurs ruled the earth. Because even though it is a British production, they don't speak English. They have their own language. In fact, I discovered there's actually an academic paper out there for those of you who enjoy the Google 
an academic at Washington State University has actually gone through all the Hammer Dinosaur movies and Ringo Starr's Caveman and assembled the lexicon of cave speak. So if you're interested, pursue that. And I just want to mention a very special, special feature. Uh, in case your KVs is a little off, there is, of course, a uh, wonderful subtitle track where you can read along in cave language. It doesn't translate. For yeah, we you. didn't have that when I was a kid. <laughs> no, I now know how to spell Akita, which, by the way, Dan, means look. If uh, you are a fan of J.G. Ballard, and you should be because he is a very great writer, his final book, which is the autobiographical Life's Miracles, there's actually a it's part of a chapter devoted to the creation of this film. It's very entertaining read, uh, and I was actually rather surprised when I went back to to reread it, the, the thing that got J.G. Ballard involved was his post-catastrophic sci-fi novel, The Drowned World. Yeah, yeah. Which is, which From is, 1962. Yeah, way before people knew about climate change, he wrote the book about it. Yeah, he did. And it takes place on an earth that what is... What climate change? <laughs> <laughs> and it takes place on an earth that has been flooded. And it's a band of survivors really meekly getting by, knowing that there's no way out of it. And uh, an executive at Hammer loved the book and brought him in and said, we're going to make another dinosaur picture. But we <laughs> wanted to have the tone of Drowned World. Right, because the previous dinosaur film, which I think we might want to mention, because it is sort of the uh, one million years BC with Raquel Welch, and that was a successful and an expensive film for Hammer. And they're like, when Hammer, like you do a Dracula movie, you might as well do as many more as you possibly can. So let's do another dinosaur movie. And there's a very funny description of the pitch meeting he has, where uh, they start talking about the flood, and he's sort of like thinking on his feet, and he goes, "No, no, what's different about this one is it's after the flood." <laughs> and the executive got up behind his desk and went, "That's it." So this is a brand new master made especially for Blu-ray that brings out all of Jim Danforth's wonderful, wonderful Oscar-nominated yeah. special effects. Hammer's one Oscar nomination. His dinosaurs, the animation style used is, I would say, greatly enhanced. Oh, it looks great. It does it justice. It really is terrific stop-motion effects. I mean, Jim Danforth, very much of the Harryhausen school. Right. And it shows. It's really good optical work. You can tell it's optical work, of course. Yes. That's the nature of the film. And it's Hammer. But on the (laughs) Blu-ray, it's really clear. It really looks good. This is sort of a film you can watch on three levels because there's the camp, cavemen, and dinosaurs thing. There is an interesting sort of uh, cultural unconsciousness thing that's in the treatment. Like, what are, you know... Earth and sun and moon and yeah, and what's going on in Florida. There's the creation of the moon, and is then going there's on. just appreciating a great, great special effects vehicle. So to give a little context, this film opened in the UK, and then when it was getting ready to open in the US, a Warner Brothers executive decided that by removing three minutes of nudity, this film, which would have probably been R-rated at the time, would be a big hit for kids if they cut out all the nudity and they rated it G. So even though there is a lot of violence and there are scary dinosaurs. Multiple attempted uh, sacrifices. Skimpy costumes. Without the overt nudity, they did receive a G rating and that's how the film was released theatrically. However, the consumer and the collector and the fan of Hammer wants the original international uncut version. And that is what we have remastered, especially for this Blu-ray. And it's so clear that you can actually (laughs) 
see through some of the special effects. Y- yes. <laughs> we deliberately did not try to rectify that because the film was made that way. And we don't want to change history. We want to preserve the film, make it look just as good as it possibly can. And we know you're going to love When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth if you're a sci-fi fan. Now we will go from the ridiculous to the sublime and the glamorous Miss Joan Crawford, who was at the height of her powers as a superstar at MGM. The year was 1933. She co-starred yet again with her frequent co-star and dear friend, Clark Gable in Dancing Lady. Uh, was released in 1933 and was most certainly MGM's answer to Warner Brothers' massive and unexpected success with the musical 42nd Street. 42nd Street took the musical genre, which was considered dead and buried, thanks to the many creaky early musicals of the beginning of the sound era. 42nd Street turned the musical world upside down and showed that you could make an entertaining musical and take advantage of the form. And every studio followed suit trying to imitate the success that Warner Brothers had. We talked about this just recently when we were talking about flying down to Rio and the Starin' Rogers and RKO. Well, what MGM did was they had Joan Crawford, Clark Gable, they even had Ted Healy and his Stooges, and making his first appearance on film, playing himself, a Broadway star who had just arrived in Hollywood named Mr. Fred Astaire. The film Dancing Lady was a typical backstage saga, and uh, Joan Crawford shines in her leading lady role, and she even performs with Fred Astaire in Hi-Ho, the Gang's All Here, a big production number, and she sings, she dances, and she romances with Gable. It's really a classic film was a big hit at the box office. Also known for Franchot Tone and Joan Crawford making an impression on screen together for the first time, I think. And it's important to remember it's a typical backstage drama for 1933, which means we have uh, many, many pre-code elements and we have a number of, of really good musical numbers inserted into it, both in rehearsal form and back. But we also have this backstory of this woman that's fallen into burlesque and perhaps other ways of making living lifted up, placed into a show by a millionaire, which is the Francho Tone character who's trying to control her. So there's there's a little bit of grit in the gears of this film. And every time you turn around, there's like a star comes by. And I mean, like... Nothing like having the Three Stooges. And Robert Benchley. And Robert Benchley show up for the humor. You can't get better second bananas than in this film. And that's why this is uh, a musical for everybody. MGM actually overproduced it. They ended up cutting out a lot of the musical sequences because there was just too much of it in a a film that was basically story-driven, not unlike 42nd Street. Exactly. So some of the deleted material ended up in some of the short subjects that were released later. But there's also a lot of stills floating around of Joan Crawford in metallic makeup. Yeah. And uh, that's part of all that stuff that was shot for this movie. The other thing this film did was introduce a song that would go on to be a standard, Everything I Have is Yours by Burton Lane. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would later be the title of an MGM movie in 1952. But this was one that hit the bullet on all counts. And now it's once again in print on DVD from the Warner Archive Collection. We highly recommend Dancing Lady. I was sort of fun about, I mean, even though it's unintentional, this sort of group of six films is 
you very much trace the arc of Joan's post. The three faces of Joan, because Dancing Lady is very much the icon of the jazz age Joan Crawford. The end of the flapper. Yeah, Joan. and then we get into hard-boiled Joan Crawford, and then we get into super icon Joan Crawford. Exactly. Oh, this is a Jonapalooza, <laughs> and I watched these all back-to-back, and it's like a great set. Did you watch them in full-time, or did you watch them two times speed? Oh, I did not. No, no, Joan does not get... Everyone makes the yeah. time for Joan. Yeah, you make time for Joan on Good, I, I wanted to make sure you got the full impression. Oh, I Sadie McKee it. from 1934 is one of the... Joan Crawford movies that is actually excerpted in the television set that can be seen in the movie Whatever Happened to Baby Jane when Mm. the character of Blanche Hudson is watching her old movies on TV. They show scenes from Sadie McKee, among other things, for Joan Crawford. And (laughs) Crawford says it's still a pretty good picture. And Sadie (laughs) McKee was a really good picture indeed. And uh, she co-stars with Gene Raymond and it's a story about a poor girl trying to rise her way up as Joan often did and there's Edward Arnold rich and uh, kind of obnoxious. And also one of the more realistic portrayals of an alcoholic in cinema at the time. Mm-hmm. Sympathetic character. Yeah. yeah, I mean, normally Edward Arnold's kind of a bad guy. In this, you feel bad for him. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's the alcohol that makes him obnoxious. Yeah. And he's, he's embarrassing himself, basically. But uh, this is one of the roles that, that Crawford was really proud of. And then some of her MGM films that followed were a bit on the weak side. And then her career went on a higher trajectory when she started doing movies like The Women and 1940s Strange Cargo, which is the next film we're going to talk about. This is directed by one of the fine directors who did so much great work at many studios, Frank Borzegi. And this was the eighth and final time that Clark Gable would be teamed with Joan Crawford. But in a switch that was very significant in its implication, this time Clark Gable gets top billing. Right. Like Clark was just more or less off of Gone with the Wind and she's just off the women so both of them are like in a resurgence but Clark's was quite a bit yeah Joan Crawford was really determined to be doing different roles she didn't want to be perceived as be the the young flapper slash shop girl behind the scenes this film had a sort of tricky path to production because needless to say the the code wasn't too happy that her character is clearly a prostitute yeah oh no there's you can't really dance around that one and they were are also uncomfortable with the fact that this film is both a gritty prison escape adventure film and a religious allegory. One of the characters that is part of the escaped prison conflict is very much a, a spiritual allegory figure that is leading these criminals either to salvation or redemption. But meanwhile, of course, it is a crackerjack romance and adventure film. With Peter Laurie, who always creeps up the place in the best way possible. Now, the next film is from 1941, and Joan Crawford is reunited with the great director who she loved working with in The Women, uh, made two years earlier. It's George Cukor at the helm for A Woman's Face, 1941, where she co-stars with Melvin Douglas. And this is one of Crawford's best pictures. Mm -hmm. Her work in this movie is unglamorous. She allows herself to play a disfigured woman. It's actually a remake of an earlier foreign film, and MGM bought the rights to give Crawford the kind of property that 
would elevate her status as a more serious actress. With Ingrid Bergman. The That's earlier that, film. The earlier film from yes. 38, yeah. That's right. The sweet, it was a Swedish Ingrid Bergman movie that they bought the plot. It's told in flashback. It's a murder trial. She's a hardened criminal because of a disfigurement on her face. A big scar. There's a bit of a mystery that gets involved. Melvin Douglas is always great, and he's very Melvin Douglasy in this. There's some twists and turns in attempted murders, and uh, the essential question of the film is this hardened criminal she portrays after being given a chance at another life thanks to Melvin Douglas can she really escape her darker side? Yeah, if you're scarred on the outside, does that scar you on the inside? And, and it doesn't help if Conrad Veidt is on your case to do murder. <laughs> and he's so mean. He's so mean. But this was really Crawford's last great film at MGM. She did a few more there afterwards, none of which were really very successful. And uh, through mutual agreement, Crawford and MGM parted ways after almost 20 years, and Joan found herself seeking a new home, and if MGM wasn't going to give her the kind of role she wanted, well, Warner Brothers was ready, willing, and able. And they waited for just the right role. She was actually under contract at Warner Brothers for almost a year before she started filming Mildred Pierce, which had been turned down by other actresses at the studio. But Joan leapt at the part, and under the direction of Michael Curtiz, she ended up winning the Best Actress Oscar. And success is a great way of having revenge. She became one of Warner Brothers' leading ladies and had many great films that followed. And there was Possessed, there was Humoresque, and then in 1949 came The Great Flamingo Road. And that is the film that we're bringing back to DVD in this sextet of Joan Crawford releases. And what's most notable about this film is that Zachary Scott appears without a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Joan Crawford plays a woman who's decided she's had enough with the traveling circus. But her entry into town is one of my favorite character entrances because, of course, when you're a cop, and you're like, gee, what's this tent by the railroad tracks? And you go inside and it's Joan Crawford has moved into town. That's just a, such a fantastic reveal. And this film is also about, it has a great sense of place. Right. She is done wrong by this town. And she is not going to leave this town until this town gets her revenge. She's very specifically yeah. done wrong by the town sheriff, played by the great Sidney Greenstreet. Who's so good as a villain in this. It's like about just local politics, just incredibly dark and wrong. And this was a flamingo road, right? It was a flaming hit. This was uh, a big box office success. Fun. And in this film also appeared David Bryan, who would later co-star with Joan Crawford in other films. But uh, Flamingo Road is so successful and so famous that years later, decades later, it ended up becoming the basis for a short-lived Lorimar television series. I was going to ask about that. Yes, because I vaguely remembered this show Flamingo Road, and, and it was based on this. Yeah, loosely. Okay. But it has this sense of place. You could see a TV show happening oh, in yeah. this town. There's intermarriage, it's, murder, machinations. And there's a cul-de-sac just around the block <laughs> called Knox Lane. But I'm just kidding. <laughs> Flamingo Road is a Warner Brothers classic. We're proud to bring it back to DVD in all its glory. It's a really beautiful looking disc. And speaking of beautiful looking discs, Color by Technicolor is a flame in 1953's Torch Song. This was Joan Crawford's return 
returned to MGM. Her contract at Warner Brothers came to an end and she wanted to be an independent, which was very common in the early 50s as the studio system was starting to give way to independency and lots of stars that were associated with a particular studio started to break off on their own. Alan Ladd severed his ties with Paramount. Cagney severed his ties with Warner Brothers. Bogart severed his ties with Warner Brothers. There was just a lot of a momentum of performers wanting to do their own thing, have a more of a piece of the pie. And what Joan Crawford did was she helped to produce a film that was independently made and then distributed by RKO in 1952 called Sudden Fear. It's one of the best films she ever made. And it spent a long time not being able to be seen due to all sorts of circumstances. If RKO only had retained ownership of it, it would have been for everybody to see forever. But now it is back in public view and has been for many years. And she gave such a great performance in this that it inspired MGM to welcome her back with open arms. And they even put a big placard across the studio Mm. saying, welcome back, Joan. And they created this backstage story vehicle for her called Torch Song, in which she plays a Broadway musical superstar who's tough as nails. She falls in love with a blind pianist played by Michael Wilding. Whose seeing eye dog is not too fond of her. No. (laughs) Duchess does not like Jenny Stewart. That dog puts in a great performance. This movie is one of those films that was made intentionally to be dramatic, but is unintentionally very funny at many points during the film. She was directed by Charles Walters, and Charles Walters actually can be seen in the opening number of the movie dancing with her. And he's supposed to be a chorus boy trying to break in with the big star and he can't dance correctly. And that's kind of the little in-joke because in reality he was a great dancer, choreographer, and then became a great director. Speaking of great dancers, Joan was heading towards 50 when they made this and she's still quite the dancer. Well, and she resisted age dramatically and she wanted everybody to know that her legs were still great looking and by that point she was always taking her photographs where she was looking up at the ceiling. Ah, There was a little shadow under her throat. This is an MGM Technicolor film so it is an A picture even though it wasn't done on necessarily an A budget and one of the things that's interesting about it is you can see reused sets from Kiss We Kate and the musical sequences in the movie. The biggest one is a number called Two-Faced Woman in which Joan appears in what we describe as tropical makeup. (laughs) And the song Two-Faced Woman was written by Howard Dietz and Arthur Schwartz and it isn't Joan's voice we're hearing singing. Her voice double was a woman named India Adams. India Adams had been the voice double for Sid Charisse in The Bandwagon which was filmed at MGM a couple of years earlier. Not to let a pre-recording live in purgatory, MGM used the pre-recordings India Adams made of Two-Faced Woman as it was shot for Sid Charisse to perform in the bandwagon. Then it was cut from the bandwagon, so MGM reused the recording and had Joan Crawford perform very different choreography 
or lack thereof mm. in this big musical production in the tropical makeup. And it is one of the most memorable sequences that we had in That's Entertainment 3, where we split <laughs> the screen and put the two two-faced women uh-huh. together. Oh, no. You have the same audio track, and you're uh, seeing two very different oh, kind boy. of images. And as Debbie Reynolds says in their narration, maybe the studio dropped the wrong version. So <laughs> I don't know what compelled them to put her in a bright orange fright wig and this tropical makeup. But the number is a little bit on the ridiculous side. But the pleasures to be had in Torch Song are many, especially if you're a Crawford fan. And another song in the movie, You Won't Forget Me, was forgotten on the cutting room floor of Duchess of Idaho, where it had been sung by Lena Horne. So they reused that song from there. But one thing they did and spent a little money doing so was a popular song of the era, Tenderly. They uh, licensed that song and it became kind of the theme that runs throughout Mm -hmm. the movie and it works very 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 well the film was such a favorite among fans that Carol Burnett did a phenomenal (laughs) spoof of it called Torchy Song and as Carol Burnett and Friends is still in syndication and on various uh, formats if you ever get a chance to see Torchy Song I saw Torchy Song before I saw the actual movie Torch Song but uh, (laughs) this is definitely a favorite and there's a lot of cool stuff on this disc too we have Uh, some of Joan Crawford's recording sessions where she was trying to sing the song Follow Me herself. She ended up being dubbed by India Adams but the person who buys this disc gets a chance to hear how hard Joan Crawford worked, tried to have her own voice be somewhere in this movie. And the only place you can actually hear her singing herself is when she's singing along with a record of India Adams' voice, singing tenderly. Mm. And it's supposed to be the younger version of the Jenny Stewart character. And the other point of interest, of course, I mentioned Michael Wilding as the leading man, the blind pianist, who fell in love with her before he lost his sight in World War II as an audience member who became infatuated with Jenny Stewart on the stage. And he somehow worked his way to becoming a rehearsal pianist for her. And they battle all the way through the picture and eventually, well, you can kind of figure out that there is a happy ending. Anyway, Torch Song, now available on its own for the first time on DVD. I was part of a collection before, but now you can own it with its original glorious artwork, which itself was reused from the poster from A Woman's Face. They were very, very, how should I say it, creative in how they used assets to minimize cost and maximize the opportunity for profit. And we're very grateful that Torch Song is around to entertain us. Lo, these almost 65 years later. Now, this is a Warner Archive podcast where normally we would read a consumer letter, but we do not have one to read for you today. There was nothing in our mailbox. Oh. It was empty. We would be so grateful if you'd send us a letter, preferably with a self-addressed stamped envelope inside where you can ask for swag and Dan will happily fill it for you. If people want to send us a podcast letter, where should they send it? Please send your missives to Warner Archive Podcast, 3400 Riverside Drive, B160-4, Burbank, California, 91522. So that wraps up this week's Warner Archive podcast, but we will be back just next week, a few days from now. We'll be back with all new releases and maybe something even borrowed. No, better than that, something blue. Mm. So until that time, I'm George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. Akita, Salta, Zach. Enjoy the Warner Archive releases for this week and look forward to the next Warner Archive podcast. <laughs>